Uh, good morning to everyone. Thank you for being here, and I want to thank Liz Carmichael for organizing uh, a conference which a director of an International Peace Studies Institute uh, is delighted to have happen here at Oxford because uh, at the Kroc Institute, part of our mandate and mission is, in fact, to uh, advance the study of peace. And my comments this morning are going to provide an overview of our approach at the Kroc Institute, which is evolving over the last decade, which we call strategic peace building as a way to bring coherence to not only our own programs in graduate and undergraduate teaching, research, and outreach, but in a way, hopefully, advance this concept in the larger field. And the concept, as you'll see, is based on a critique of the liberal peace and peace studies up to this decade, really. I'm going to uh, try to finish my remarks within 40 or 45 minutes. If I go a few minutes over, you can start coughing or shouting, but please don't do that until 40 or 45 minutes. Let me begin. Strategic peace building. Mozambique gained its independence from Portugal in June 1975. Twice the size of California and with a population of 7 million, the new nation was plagued by poverty, a 90% illiteracy rate, and periodic devastating droughts. The 230,000 Portuguese settlers who fled in the mid-1970s left the country bereft of most skilled professional and business people. They also took working capital and sabotaged equipment as they departed. The economy, therefore, at independence was in a shambles. Samora Michel, the military leader of the independence movement known as Ferlimo, the front for the liberation of Mozambique, became the new nation's first president. Ferlimo's Marxist-Leninist ideology inspired opposition in the form of the Mozambique National Resistance, or RENAMO, which was composed of former Portuguese soldiers, disgruntled Ferlimo deserters, and common criminals. RENAMO launched a guerrilla war in the early 1980s directed at destabilizing Ferlimo. By 1992, the insurgency had left over a million Mozambicans dead and had displaced six to eight million others in a population that totaled only 14 million. Throughout the Civil War, the religious communities of Mozambique constituted the nation's civil society. The Catholic Church, which had maintained close ties with the colonial government well into the 1960s, grew more diversified politically during this time, with many priests supporting the Marxist Ferlimo leadership. From the late 1970s until 1982, Ferlimo attempted to suppress the churches, appropriating their considerable rural assets and hounding religious actors. State persecution served to galvanize the religious, however, and the churches came to represent the single most influential alternative voice and institution in the country. The larger Mozambican religious community was divided, however. Muslims were generally hostile toward Ferlimo. Evangelical and Pentecostal organizations recognized and supported Renamo. The Catholic bishops issued pastoral letters condemning atrocities committed by both sides and calling for negotiations. Relations between the governments and the religious groups improved markedly between 1981 and 1988, the period when the United States provided $240 million in primarily humanitarian aid to the Ferlimo government. This policy had its intended effect. In 1983, Mozambique began to allow NGOs, such as the private relief agency CARE, to operate, and Mozambique moved toward a less centralized economy. The government could no longer deny that the churches were providing essential social services, 
such as the distribution of food and clothing, education, and health care, which the state itself was, an was unable to supply during the war with Renamo. The Mozambique churches were able to draw on an international religious network of social services and to channel desperately needed assets into Mozambique. In addition, the churches maintained its infrastructure in the rural areas despite the ravages of the Civil War. State officials often had to rely on religious groups for information about rebel-controlled areas. In time, the horrendous condition of the economy and the depredations of the Civil War itself forced Verlimo to reconsider its policies and seek the cooperation of any group willing to help the conflict end. In this context, the Roman Catholic community of Sant'Egidio took on a major role in hosting and mediating the complex negotiations that eventually led to the end of the Civil War. What element of what I'll be calling strategic peace building did this transnational organization of lay Catholic professionals bring to the setting? I'd like to remember that vignette. I'm gonna present a few more short ones and then analyze them through this lens of strategic peace building. So Mozambique is the first with this community of Sant'Egidio and, and the presence of the various churches and religious bodies. Secondly, second vignette, in 2006, following the election of Alvaro Uribe as president of Colombia, representatives of the government opened a process to demobilize the paramilitary structure in the war-torn nation. In the long history of government insurgent negotiations, different administrations had asked the Catholic bishops and their support staff to provide oversight, good offices, and guarantees of safety and integrity, and occasional facilitation of talks. As the new initiative took shape, church leadership faced questions regarding what role it would play in the process. Specifically, the role of paramilitaries in the long history of human rights abuses in Colombia and their proximity to government actors generated widespread concern, as did the prospect of an in-game scenario which, hidden under the umbrella of peace process and reconciliation, would fail to address the need for truth, justice, and reparations. In this context, the ethics of building peace came into stark contrast with the pragmatics of negotiation and the dismantling of an armed organization. Victim communities affected by paramilitarism, communities that the church had accompanied in some regions, expressed anxiety about the process and the church's role in it. They feared renewed violence and worried whether they would receive the acknowledgement and reparations they deserved. Not least, the victimized communities felt pressure to engage in reconciliation. But what, they asked, does reconciliation mean in such a context? The situation became even more complex in light of the fact that the church was also at the time engaged in on-again, off-again negotiations with armed insurgencies on the left. In addition, local parishes were supporting communities of internally displaced persons and helping to maintain fledgling peace zones that have been declared at grassroots level in at least three different regions of Colombia. So we ask, what, would a street, what did a strategic peace-building pers perspective offer to the Catholic Church as it attempted to balance these competing claims and build peace in the context of a 50-year civil war? Third vignette, in August 2008, a historic peace accord in Mindanao between the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and the government of the Philippines nearly reached fruition. 
the result of seven years of negotiation facilitated, facilitated by the Malaysian government, a document called the Memorandum of Agreement on, on Ancestral Domain had survived numerous iterations and stages of mutual consensus building. In the last push, following the initialing of this yet-to-be-signed negotiating document, a divided Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. Immediately, a variety of international, civil society, and local actors lodged protests and encouraged the negotiators to salvage the historic opportunity to end conflict that traces its roots across centuries in the largest southernmost island of the archipelago. The negotiators asked, how might the resources and methods provided by a strategic peace-building approach sustain the negotiation process at a time of crisis? Finally, several groups working in Nogales, where half the city is located on the Arizona side of the border and the other half in Mexico, have identified their need for help from some party who can view the situation comprehensively, see the big picture, identify a path forward, and facilitate a common approach to local issues. They have recruited peace builders to the scene. Such groups are not alone. Borders in many countries create interdependent communities living in close proximity, while the policies that regulate migration are formulated thousands of miles away in national capitals. The economic globalization that creates flows of capital and workforces underscores the artificiality of maps and mocks pretensions to sovereignty. Workers and their families are buffeted about by the economic and social hurricane. We are not in open war, but we have got a mess on our hands, they say. Does what I'll be defining as strategic peace building offer relevant analysis, diagnosis, and paths to constructive change to provide to people caught in the crossfire of immigration and the globalization of economies? Those are my four vignettes. The most recent generation in global politics might well be called the age of peace building, given the intense, diverse, and global wave of efforts to end the violence and colossal injustices of civil war, genocide, dictatorship, and large-scale poverty, and to foster justice and prosperity in their stead. Since 1988, the United Nations has undertaken peace building operations in revolutionary number and frequency, each year since then increasing the number of interventions. Since the end of the Cold War, an unprecedented number of civil wars have ended through negotiated settlements. A third wave of democracy, beginning in 1974, has seen some 80 societies move toward human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. Everyone, it seems, from the UN to the World Bank to the World Social Forum to relief and development agencies, has pursued ambitious quests to end poverty and resolve conflict. In this milieu, transitional justice has become a global pursuit involving national trials, vetting practices, international criminal tribunals, a permanent international criminal court, over 30 truth commissions, an outbreak of reparations and public apologies, and sometimes even forgiveness in the political realm. Western states have struggled to establish security and the rule of law in sites of violence and anarchy. The United States and Somalia, Afghanistan and Iraq, Germany and Afghanistan, and the European Union in Kosovo and the Democratic Republic of Congo, just to mention a few. Human rights organizations, religious institutions, tribal elders, 
and citizens of domestic societies have sought to resolve and transform conflict in innovative ways as well. But if this montage of energies describes a trend, so too it evokes urgent questions. Are, are all of these efforts truly ones of building peace? Which have been successful? Under what conditions have they been successful? Which are just? By what criteria? Do some of these efforts affect others, positively or negatively? Most of all, are there concepts, doctrines, or paradigms that tell us how peacebuilding ought to be pursued? The dominant paradigm to date has been the liberal peace paradigm, dominant in that it pervades the most powerful and prestigious institutions and governments who take on the work of peacebuilding. The aims of the liberal peace are simple, to end armed violence, to establish human rights, democracy, and market economies. Its intellectual provenance is the liberal tradition that arose from the Western Enlightenment. It envisions the United, States, the United Nations, outside intervening states, state governments, and oppositional factions undertaking mediation, military intervention, war settlement, disarmament, election monitoring, refugee res resettlement, and the creation of free government institutions, free markets, and a free media. A cardinal virtue of the liberal peace approach is finitude. When will this operation end? Yet at the Kroc Institute and elsewhere in the world of scholarship on peace, peacebuilding practitioners have testified consistently and in an increasingly insistent voice. The liberal peace paradigm is far too narrow. No one, of course, rejects human rights, democracy, economic growth, or even the United Nations. But the building of peace, they argue, is far wider, deeper, and more encompassing, and involves a greater array of actors, activities, levels of society, links between societies, and time horizons than the dominant paradigm recognizes, or accounts for, or integrates. It involves the UN, that is, what's actually happening, the building of peace, involves the UN carrying out sanctions against terrorist groups in a way that promotes good governance, human rights, and economic development in the countries where sanctions are targeted. It involves also coordinating the inter international prosecution of war criminals with the need to settle the civil war and the efforts of local cultures and leaders to bring peace. As well, it involves educating the children of a society's next generation so as to transform their hatred into tolerance and even friendship. It involves NGOs and civil society, as well as ethnic and religious actors who are all but ignored in the liberal peace paradigm. It involves combating inequalities that are embedded in global structures of power and wealth. It involves trials, truth commissions, and reparations, but also apology, forgiveness, and tribal rituals of reconciliation. Not only is the broad range of these players, practices, and periods crucial for achieving sustainable peace, but each is linked to others through cause and effect, for better and worse. I have statistics I'll be happy to share with you on the limited success of peace-building operations and into civil wars and the short time period before violence recurs, especially when the peace-building operation is of limited duration. That is, there's a direct correlation between the time spent on site in the conflict, set, the conflict setting 
and the sustainability of the peace process. Many fail eventually, in part because it's a parachute-in, parachute-out operation. Effective peace-building, therefore, aims to strengthen these ligatures of interdependence, accenting, deepening, and synchronizing them, and linking them further with the efforts of governments and international institutions, and with the broad project of building a just peace in and between societies. Any particular effort at strengthening this longer-term process we might call a strategy of peace. At its core, such peace-building nurtures constructive human relationships. To be relevant, it must do this strategically, that is, at every level of society and across the potentially polarizing lines of ethnicity, class, religion, and race. This presentation, that I'm, this current presentation, is just an attempt to give a brief introduction to an emerging approach to deadly conflict, this approach known as strategic peace building, which is the capacity to recognize and develop strategies to maximize the impact of initiatives for constructive change within a globalized milieu. I'm delighted that Oxford University Press has established a series on strategic peace building, the first volume of which will appear this fall uh, that uh, Dan Philpott is editing and uh, John Paul Lederach and I are the editors of the series. That volume is called Strategies of Peace and it provides a much fuller explication of what I'm presenting here as well as several case studies. Strategic peace building therefore denotes an approach to reducing violence, resolving conflict, and building peace that is marked by a heightened awareness of and skilled adaptation to the complex and shifting material, ge geopolitical, economic, and cultural realities of our increasingly globalized and interdependent world. Accordingly, peacebuilding that is strategic draws intentionally and shrewdly on the overlapping and imperfectly coordinated presence, presences, activities, and resources of various international, transnational, national, regional, and local, regional and local institutions, agencies, and movements that influence the causes, expressions, and outcomes of conflict. Strategic peace builders take advantage of emerging and already established patterns of collaboration and interdependence for the purpose of strategically thinking about ways to coordinate these agencies for the purpose of reducing violence and alleviating root causes of deadly conflict. The strategic peace builder encourages the deeper and more frequent convergence of mission, resources, expertise, insight, and benevolent self-interest that characterizes the most fruitful multilateral collaborations in the cause of peace. Hoping that it's not a quixotic task, we at the Kroc Institute are educating our undergraduates, master's students, and PhD students in the ability to analyze a conflict situation holistically and to understand different levels of society that might be resources in addressing long-term peace building in that society. That is, we're attempting to teach them to think like strategic peace builders. How have elements of this approach emerged in the post-Cold War world? Who are the relevant partners in this enterprise? What types of skill and training are central to strategic peace building? There are certain hallmarks of the constructive relationships that strategic peace builders seek to foster among conflicted peoples. These include the cultivation of interdependence as a social and political context for the effective pursuit of human rights, good, government, good governance, and economic prosperity. The promotion of transparent communication 
across sectors and levels of society in the service of including as many voices and actors as possible in the reform of institutions and the repair or creation of partnerships conducive to the common good and the increasing coordination and where possible the integration of resources, programs, practices, and processes. These hallmarks characterize the reflective practice of peace builders themselves who think and act strategically. You might ask fairly, of what use is it to even engage in the exercise of conceptualizing peace building in this its most capacious meaning? Lederach, Philpott, and I take this ideal type approach for three reasons why conceptualize it this broadly. First, many if not all elements of this definition and description of peace building do in fact appear already in the actual peace building activities and operations around the world. All of them appear in, all of them together appear in these activities collectively considered. And all of them are successful to the central building of peace. In short, this term, this concept, adds nothing to the array of activities and aspirations already associated here and there with the making, keeping, and building of peace. Second, this kind of comprehensive approach to peace building is necessary if peace being built is to be sustain sustained over time. A sustainable peace, the historical record clearly shows, requires long-term, ongoing activities and operations that may be initiated and supported for a time by outsiders, but must eventually become the ordinary practices of the citizens and institutions of the society in question. How better to help the transition between various levels of external actors and local actors to sustain the peace? We believe further that peace building occurs in its fully realized mode when it addresses every stage of the conflict cycle and involves all members of society in the nonviolent transformation of conflict, the pursuit of social justice, and the creation of cultures of sustainable peace. Properly understood, the building and sustaining of a culture of peace and its supporting institutions requires a range of relationship building activities encompassing the entire conflict cycle, rather than merely the post-accord coming out of violence period. Accordingly, activities that constitute peace building run the gamut of conflict transformation, including violence prevention and early warning, conflict management, mediation and resolution, social reconstruction, and working with trauma in the aftermath of armed conflict, as well as the long, complex work of reconciliation throughout the process. In addition, peace building theory articulates the end goal of these disparate but interrelated phases of conflict transformation, which might be best expressed by the idea of a just peace, a dynamic state of affairs in which the reduction and management of violence and the achievement of social and economic justice are undertaken as mutual reinforcing dimensions of constructive change. The sustainable transformation of conflict requires more than the necessary problem solving associated with mediation or with negotiated settlements and other elements of conflict resolution per se. It requires the redress of legitimate grievances and the establishment of new relations characterized by equality and fairness according to the dictates of human dignity and the common good. To say that a just peace 
is the end goal of strategic peacebuilding is not to suggest that peacebuilding ends when the fundamental requirements of a just situation are established. Rather, the practices of peacebuilding that help to bring about this desired state of affairs must then become routinized in the society. For example, effective institutions for participatory government, once established, require continual oversight, nurturing, and renewal. Part of the rationale for conceptually peacebuilding in this comprehensive sense is a recognition that conflict does occur in a cycle, that each phase of the cycle is related to the others, and that efforts toward a sustainable peace must address each phase of the cycle in the context of the overall conflict. Accordingly, efforts toward prevention, for example, should not be confined to one temporal period, that is, before the violence occurs. In most societies, some level of violence has already occurred among the belligerents and is in a cyclical process. Rather, systemic efforts toward the prevention of further violence should be prominent at every stage of the conflict, including the peace process and the post-settlement implementation period. And these efforts must be present in a self-considered way, a self-conscious way. They often do happen almost serendipitously, that is, ad hoc in relationship to the outbreak of violence. But there has not been yet a thought-through, sustained notion of prevention that's threaded throughout the entire peace process and how that prevention might be continually implemented. Each of the tools available to a peace builder must be applied in the context of the situation. For example, efforts to prevent the recurrence of violence after a period of state oppression or civil war, which often occurred while a negotiated settlement is being implemented, will require a particular and somewhat different set of skills than the efforts undertaken to prevent an unprecedented outbreak of deadly violence in a society simmering with ethnic, religious, or political tensions, but not yet plunged into war. Nonetheless, prevention must unfold at every stage. The building of a constructive personal group and political set of relationships is perpetual, occurring as a constitutive part of prevention, negotiation, transitional justice, and problem resolution. Third, an ideal type definition of peace building offers the advantage of identifying the distance between the current scope, scale, and transformative impact of efforts to end violence and, and build peace on the one hand, the distance between that, and the fullest possible realization of peace building potential on the other. One, our definition therefore includes a prescriptive dimension. We believe that the, that the greater potential can be realized by envisioning peace building, conceptualizing it as this holistic enterprise, a comprehensive and coherent set of actions and operations that, that can be improved, made more effective by greater levels of collaboration, complementarity, coordination, and where possible, integration across levels of a society. In short, a comprehensive definition of sustainable peace building, if widely adopted, would stimulate the further realization of the comprehensive reality of sustainable peace. Time has been the stumbling block of several otherwise savvy or at least well-intended interventions. This robust definition of peace building incorporates the often bitter lessons of various cases learned from interventions or non-interventions such as Rwanda, Cambodia, Iraq, and Afghanistan regarding the critical importance of getting both the timing and the duration of interventions right. A lack of clarity about the end goal of such interventions clouds planners thinking about timing and duration. Professional peace builders, well aware that a comprehensive and sustainable approach takes significantly more time and commitment 
than governments and intergovernmental agencies typically allot, might sus subscribe to a modified form of Colin Powell's dictum, if it's broke, they might say, who cares who broke it? We're going to try to fix it. And fixing it, they realize, requires strategic thinking about how to forge the proper collaborative, local, national, and transnational alliances and movement-to-movement, person-to-person relationships that will be needed over a sustained period to build something even approaching a just peace. We come to this conclusion after listening to testimony of peace builders who have observed and consulted in setting of sustained violence across millions and millions of miles and dozens of years. My collaborator in this presentation, John Paul Lederach, has spent 30 years on the ground in Somalia, Nepal, the Basque Country, Northern Ireland, Colombia, around the world as a mediator and reconciler. And he points out that the period at times, the period of time it takes to effectively accompany a society out of a protracted period of deadly violence, achieve stability, and move toward a stable peace will take at least as long as it took the conflict to gestate, turn violent, and run its course. Such sobering considerations might give pause to politicians and policymakers, potential donors, intergovernmental organizations, and other, other critical contributors to any peacebuilding operation that would be planned according to the requirements of this comprehensive definition. Presumably, no one, no one wants to sink into what looks like a quagmire, which is how long-term interventions within bloody borders far from home have been depicted. So, how does one go about building the political will necessary to compel governments and other players to expand the time horizon of their commitment? Two partial responses will begin a larger discussion of this crucial question. First, one can object, of course, to the fact that states and intergovernmental agencies act in their own interest. Yet we are encouraged by the growing realization by powerful actors, ranging from major foundations to the European Union, that smart investment in carefully planned and coordinating peacebuilding operations is in fact in their own long-term interest because it's more effective, given the increasingly interdependent environment and the reluctance to reinvest over and over again in the same conflict setting. This interdependence can be seen most vividly in current debates in places like Nogales, Colombia, and Mozambique about immigration, displaced populations, and the strain put on both the international and local communities as people seek survival from hotbeds of conflict. This is only predicted to increase when we consider the coming impact of environmentally driven conflicts particularly over issues like access to and use of water and land, as the case of Mindanao's indigenous people suggests, that one of those early vignettes. That awareness of the utility of carefully planned and coordinating peacebuilding operation brings us to a second beginning response, initial response to the skepticism. How do we best attempt to ensure that peacebuilding operations fulfill their potential by leading societies to the threshold of a just and stable peace? Our answer in a word is that we do our best to ensure that strategic planning and performance informs these operations. What we mean by strategic, I'll lay out very briefly and we can hopefully talk later. Today it is necessary to think strategically and to challenge the conventional understanding of peace building by calling practitioners to be more strategic. What has changed? Why is it 
necessary that now we must think strategically. What has changed? The end of the Cold War opened the field not only for the explosion of various kinds of regional and local wars, but also for the intervention already of a dizzying array of international and transnational government and non-governmental actors. The problems facing 21st century societies are, are no longer, if ever they were, contained within national boundaries or susceptible to solutions based on one way of knowing and assessing the world. One of my hobby horses is the exclusion in so many of these processes of ethnic and religious local actors. We've just hired an anthropologist at Croc who works on reintegration of militias into Sierra Leone and analyzes that reintegration from an anthropological lens. How, do, how does the kinship uh, network work? How do elders accept young uh, gorillas back into society? If we don't understand the local knowledge, the epistemology of the local, we won't get the UN operation right. Indeed, we can identify four insights about contemporary conflicts that help us rethink peace building and fashion it as a strategic enterprise. First, the players have multiplied. In the post-Cold War era, a wider range of actors and institutions have mattered. Recalling my opening vignettes, for example, consider the variety of religious, civil, non-governmental, academic, legal, and other actors that were necessary to end the, the Mozambique Civil War, to advance the peace process in Mindanao, and to mediate between the military, the paramilitaries, the victimized groups, and the rebels in Colombia. While most of these players had already been on the scene in various capacities for many years, the changing nature of the conflicts themselves and the geopolitical power struggles suddenly required new kinds of participation by them, that is, by a wide range of non-official and non-governmental actors. No longer was peacemaking the exclusive purview of governments and states. In short, a traditional liberal peace approach to conflict resolution in contemplating root causes and structural change tended to take the nation state as the primary unit of analysis. In the aftermath of the Cold War, the framing question became, how do we adjust the scope, scale, and priorities of peace building in order to incorporate this much wider range of actors more formally and conscientiously? In, in addition, practitioners of on-the-ground peace building began to realize that deadly conflicts, if they are to be transformed, require multiple points of analysis and multiple perspectives and multiple agents of intervention in order to create sustainable change. Accordingly, peace builders began to seek strategic alliances and coordination over the longer term rather than merely a negotiated resolution. In this regard, a second framing question for the inchoate practice of strategic peace building has emerged. How do we design processes that envision conflict as the opportunity for wider constructive social change? So how do, do peace processes become reconceptualized as the basis for constructive social change that will end in preventing violence because they introduce a greater level of equality and justice and so on? Third, the field of play was enlarged to encompass and link two previously unlinked spheres of action, the local and the global. At the local level, the capacity and need for communities to art activate and mobilize resources to face the realities of internal conflicts rose sharply. It was impossible to think about peace over the last 20 years without engaging, including, and respecting the local community. Practitioners specialized in the dynamics of peace building 
within the boundaries and on the terms set by the local communities. But they also recognize that the local communities themselves already exist within, na exist within national and global context. Accordingly, peace builders, especially during the course of the last two decades, have become more experienced in cultivating and applying human and material resources both within and beyond the local community. Peacebuilding practice is thus, becoming, is thus becoming an interdisciplinary, local, global, expertise-driven approach to building sustainable peace. Striking the right balance is a delicate and difficult business between the local and the global. The relationship between three distinctive transformative processes at the heart of peacebuilding, that is, striving for social justice, ending violent conflict, and building healthy cooperative relationships in conflict-ridden societies, that relationship is complex. These processes of transformation are interrelated most fundamentally at the local level. Even when violence originates and occurs at the national or regional level, its impact is felt most keenly and directly in neighborhoods, towns, villages, cities, and local communities. To violate the principle of subsidiarity by moving too quickly beyond the most immediate co community of concern and agency to national or regional actors as agents of conflict management is to undermine any hope of genuine resolution and the transformation of most conflicts. One cannot ignore the local. Bringing representatives of these warring sides to peace talk typically requires concerted effort by those wielding high levels of political and social authority, but they cannot replace cultural agents, including religious and ethnic actors, who operate on the local level and who will be interpreting the agreements and preparing the societies for their implementation and for the transition called for by the agreements. On the other hand, the proliferation of transnational social movements for global local justice influence peace studies scholar practitioners to think beyond borders, to locate both the causes of conflict and the potential change agents both within and beyond the nation states. The nation state, meanwhile, as you know, has come under considerable pressure from above the international community and from below the local communities and from across demand for autonomy at the regional level. This principle of indigenous empowerment suggests that conflict transformation must actively envision, include, respect, and promote the human and cultural resources from within a given setting. The setting and the people cannot be seen as the problem and the outsider as the answer. Rather, the long-term goal of transformation demands that external agents of change take as the primary task of accompaniment the validation of the people and the expansion of the resources within that setting. In this regard, the framing question posed by and for strategic peace builders has become, how do we build the global movement for justice on a global level while at the same time emp empowering the voice and capacity of local communities? Finally, a paradigm shift came with the understanding that peace building requires more than the management of the conflict, the reduction of violence, or simple agreement on some political issues. Peace building must also in some way address the healing of peoples scarred and alienated by the lived experience of sustained violence in their communities and nations. Healing increasingly is understood not as a post-conflict form of therapy, but rather a precondition for the prevention of renewed conflict and the transformation of destructive social and structural patterns. 
promoting reconciliation and healing as the sine qua non of peacebuilding is predicated upon a hard-won awareness that violent conflict creates deep disruptions in relationships that then need radical healing, the kind of healing that restores the soul, the psyche, and the moral imagination. Such healing, it is now recognized, draws on profound rational, psychological, and spiritual resources. Its preferred modalities are therefore symbolic, cultural, and religious, the deepest personal and social spheres, which directly and indirectly shape the national and political spheres. The framing question here has thus become, how do we heal broken humanity? The builders of a comprehensive and sustainable peace engage each of these four questions. Consider our opening vignettes. How do we adjust the scope, scale, and priorities of peace building in order to incorporate a wider range of actors? The community of Sant'Egidio in the resolution of Mozambique civil war is by now a classic example of track two diplomacy blooming into track one of an outsider who is also a partial insider, Sant'Egidio, providing good offices and international resources and, con and connections conducive to moving the negotiations from phase to phase and of coordinating and empowering different actors. That is, Sant'Egidio was thinking strategically. I have more on this, but I'll save it for later. Moving on to the second vignette. The link between the concern for expanding the range of actors and the next two questions relating to ways of affecting larger social change and pursuing justice is embedded in the vignette describing the decisions of civic leaders and officials in the city of Nogales to invite extra-local peace builders to assist in the conceptualization of the region's challenges and solutions. The leaders of Nogales recognize that the local issues confronting them, including the patterns of migration, as they affect the composition of the workforce, the health of the local economy, and the respective rights and obligations of immigrants and citizens are also inevitably regional, national, and indeed global issues, a complicated pattern that is being replicated in thousands of borderland communities around the world, not unlike Nogales. The strategic peace builder in such cases is not only a coordinator and network builder, but a comparativist. She draws on knowledge of national and international law, on contacts in a variety of professional fields, and on the experience of other communities in similar contexts. Yet she also depends heavily, of course, on the local wisdom and experience of the people of Nogales, a project, research project we're conducting at Kroc with Uppsala in Sweden is of this type. And, and um, as was mentioned last night, uh, every conflict is unique unto itself but we still can gain a lot from comparative processes. So we've established a living database called the Peace Accord Matrix that analyzes the different dimensions of 40 comprehensive peace accords signed since the end of the uh, Cold War on questions like decommissioning of arms, reintegration of soldiers, and so forth. Sustained analyses of what happened in each of these conflicts, that's a live database for conflict negotiators on the ground. So, how did Northern Ireland handle decommissioning? What were the twists and turns? It won't apply to, Shri, apply to Sri Lanka specifically, but some of the patterns and insights might be useful. The skills needed for strategic peace building and increasingly honed and named as such by a range of professional, professionals trained in one or more variety of disciplines and areas of expertise. For example, we have peace studies colleagues around the world who are, who are specializing in particular aspects 
of peace building. I have two more quick questions and I'll be finished. How do we design processes that envision conflict as the opportunity for wider constructive social change? My third question and another vignette. How do we build a global movement for justice while also empowering local communities? Consider the example of Mindanao. In that case, as in most, the most prominently visible aspect of peace building has been the high level negotiations that took place. Equally crucial, although less understood and covered by the media, was the wider context of activities, roles, and initiatives that provide an infrastructure for constructive change in Mindanao. A short list of these external actors, I'm sorry, actors that are not at the elite level, would include a decade of grassroots initiatives that built relationships in local communities across the important divisions among Muslim, Christian, and indigenous groups. Education and training programs and conflict transformation and peace building that were undertaken during this seven year period that reached a wide range of civil society actors and created important linkage between local peace builders and the representatives of both Philippines National Army and the MILF. The careful nurturing and development of ever widening civil society networks dedicated to human rights, such as the Peace Weavers Coalition in Mindanao, with an active constituency of more than 20 organizations. The commitment on the part of the government to create a national office to sustain and coordinate the peace efforts beyond a particular administration. The initiation and commitment on the part of religious leaders to develop the Bishop Ulama Conference that has met on a regular basis in Mindanao for more than a decade. A sustained and long-term funding by a range of international donors to build local capacity and institutional platforms for local and regional organizations. And finally, the commitment on the part of Malaysia to slowly but surely negotiate the basis of the document over the course of seven years. At the point of the collapse of the negotiations, violence rose sharply and trust decreased among the players in the formal process. At the same time, however, the web of relationships mobilized within and around Mindanao. Sets of relationships between a variety of different actors that had not existed a decade ago, for example, those between civil society actors and militaries on both sides, negotiators and the concerned international community, these webs of relationships began to coordinate a response to the emergency of the communities affected by the renewed violence. These unofficial but critical actors mobilized conferences within and outside Mindanao that put forward numerous proposals for reinitiating negotiations and the beginnings of wider consultations that moved from local to higher levels. So far, the outcome regarding this final agreement is unknown, but the infrastructure of a multiplicity of actors engaged in a common concern has functioned in ways unthinkable a decade earlier. What is clear is that, that the final, most visible aspects of the process, the formal negotiations, rest on the courage and creativity, not only of the negotiators, but also of the wider set of relationships, activities, and initiatives that are needed to sustain the peaceful transformation of a social, religious, economic, and political conflict that traces its roots across centuries. I could say more about my other examples of Colombia and the multiplicity of actors and the role of the church in Colombia, but I fear I've already gone over a little bit of my time, and I'll be happy to discuss more of this in time for discussion later. Thanks for your attention.